not just the details unearthed here that make this a must watch, it's how everyone involved comes together to illuminate more than could be gained from a traditional biographical series. That's Brian Tallarico of RogerEbert.com and I cannot wait to talk about Hemingway, the latest great documentary from Ken Burns, three parts, six hours long. And spoiler alert, I'm an enormous Hemingway fan, so I was dying to see this. When I first heard Ken Burns was doing it, I leapt up with excitement, and it is outstanding. And I cannot wait to talk to you all about it, all six hours of it. In addition to that, we've got news involving the BAFTAs as Nomadland dominates, continuing their charge towards the Oscars on April 25th. We'll go through all the uh, winners as well. Uh, news involving Scorsese's Flowers of the Moon, news involving Spielberg's semi-autographical film, and also... Director Brad Furman, cannot wait to talk to this guy. Director of the new film City of Lies, starring Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker. Really cool movie, especially if you're a fan of Biggie Smalls. And the Mount Rushmore of serious actors who cashed in. The um, genesis of this is my kids were watching Godzilla vs. Kong, and I thought, what the hell is Kyle Chandler doing in this movie? Like, Kyle Chandler, I think of as, you know, a very solid, dramatic actor. You know, obviously, people know him because of Friday Night Lights. I loved him in Wolf of Wall Street. Like, what the hell is he doing in this? Like, clearly... He's just getting paid. So there are some great examples that Joe has put together here of actors just, I don't want to say selling out, but just literally doing it for the money. I mean, it's just, there's no question about it. I mean, I don't want to spoil some of these. The work that Joe did getting these numbers is just, it's nothing short of incredible. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, thank you, as always, to everyone for listening to Cinephile. Um, for those who are unaware, maybe you don't follow me on social media, uh, our time on Cinephile here on Cadence 13 will be coming to an end shortly, but Cinephile will continue. So we're going to be on Meadowlark Media. I'm assuming it'll be easy to follow, just as the Cinephile is and Apple Podcasts and all the rest of it. But I do want to offer a heartfelt thank you to Cadence 13, to my friend Chris Corcoran, um, you know, when, when yeah, everything happened, when, when I was jettisoned from ESPN, you know, Chris was one of the first to reach out and said, I'm here for you, and uh, I'd like you to be a part of our company here at Cadence 13. And the fact that he said that means the world to me. The fact that he said, I want you to do this NFL podcast with Michael Lombardi. I think you guys have great chemistry together. If you do that, you can do Cinephile. Uh, I'll never forget Chris's kindness and how supportive he was. Um, so that was, I think, really, really important. And obviously, thanks to... The entire crew, we have an amazing team at Cadence 13, most notably my producer, Joe, who's been uh, obviously more than just a producer, he's been a friend. So I'm really grateful for all the support we have here at Cadence 13. The good news is, as I said, you will still be able to listen to Cinephile. Uh, Joe will not be part of the project moving forward. I know some people were tweeting me about that or texting. So uh, the good news is Joe and I will be together on the GM Shuffle, which will continue here, me and Michael Lombardi, on Cadence 13, and we have a blast doing that. So I don't know any more details beyond that, but uh, Cinephile is going to continue weekly. I know that. I just don't know how much longer here on Cadence 13. But, uh, Joe, I just want to start by saying a big, big time thank you to man. You've been an awesome job. I love your insights, your observations, your humor, and all the work you put into this. So I am very, very grateful, my friend. Adnan, first and foremost, congratulations. But I've said this to you probably a million times off air already, and I'll probably tell you another million times going forward. But no, I should be thanking you. This podcast has single-handedly made me a bigger cinephile. It has made encouraged me to watch movies that I normally wouldn't, and it's something that I'm going to take with me past this podcast for the rest of ever. So thank you for that. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with the project, with everything. I can't wait. Oh, that's so kind of you, Joe. And uh, for those who are, may be aware of some other developments, I'm also now the commentator on Monday Night Raw and WWE. So uh, the only reason I'm addressing this is because people keep asking, what does this mean with the other jobs? So to be clear, I'm not leaving my other jobs. I'm doing all my other jobs. So I'm still with MLB Network. I will be on NHL Network tomorrow night, for example. Or we're taping this on a Tuesday. Wednesday night when you're listening, I'll be on NHL Network. Uh, I'm still with DAZN. I'm doing a bunch of NFL draft coverage. I'm still doing um, work on Rogers with my radio hits back home in Canada. So, no, my jobs are not going anywhere. I've now got six jobs and four kids. And obviously, most importantly, all of you who are listening and are wonderful, wonderful people. So, thank you for the support here of uh, Team Verk Passion Projects. And most notably, like I said, thanks to Joe for the support. And thank you to Chris Corcoran and everyone here at Cadence. Uh, as always, you can support the podcast. Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review... Uh, must see Bill Maher ranting. I heard he did a rant about the Oscars. I, I'm not going to see it. I don't really care for Bill Maher, to be perfectly blunt. Ramadan starting. I'm going to be fasting. Sunrise to sunset. Maher has been very uh, openly critical of Islam and all religion, to be perfectly honest. So I'm like, I, I don't really care for that guy. <laughs> there's, there's my quick answer to why I'm not going to watch a Bill Maher rant. I, I heard about it. I heard he just basically said the Oscars are like, you know, 
a bunch of like serious movies and very depressing, but I'm not going to watch that. Thank you for the recommendation. Uh, meh, meh. Great show again this week. Thanks for interviewing Alexander Nanao. As a Romanian growing up in the States, I'm not too familiar with Romanian cinema. I'm looking forward to diving in, seeing his work. Yeah, uh, thank you for supporting us. I thought Alexander was awesome. He was very, very supportive, and uh, it was really cool. Lots of other messages here mentioning, hey, congrats about the move to Metalark. You joined the Dan Lubitard family. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't want to go through all these, but uh, I appreciate everyone here supporting us, and uh, as they call it, going aboard the pirate ship. Um, and people did also mention the fact that me and Joe have still been able to do this in a very lean time in terms of content is concerned. The content has continued. Um, all right, let's do this. Hemingway. So I love Hemingway, all right? He's, he's probably my favorite author. I mean, I love Richard Price as far as contemporary authors are concerned. You know, he wrote Clockers. You know him as a screenwriter in many ways because um, he wrote The Color of Money. He did The Night Of. He co-wrote that with Stephen Zalian. Um, Price is a guy who did Freedom Land. You may have seen the movie, Steve, uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Julianne Moore. So I really do love Richard Price. David Mamet actually is my favorite writer because Mamet does plays, screenplays. He's a director and, you know, he's written a couple of books. But like Hemingway, if someone says, to you, okay, you know, old school author, who's your guy? I'm saying Ernie Hemingway. So I could not wait to watch this incredible, exhaustive six-hour series. And to be clear, it's six hours and I could have taken 60. I thought it was amazing. And I'll say this for Ken Burns. I know some will say style gets a little redundant, you know, the still shots, the camera coming in, the bland voiceover, the music. I love every aspect of it. Because like when I'm watching a Ken Burns movie, I know what I'm watching. And in fact, he shares this with Hemingway, which is that he enjoys utilizing different subjects, but doing so in the same distinct style. And one of the coolest things about Hemingway is you realize his writing style, which for those who are unaware, it's all about being terse, and brevity, and the economy of storytelling. You know, he, he never wanted to write a 10,000-word letter when a 1,000 words would suffice. And the, the focus that this documentary puts on his writing and how strong it is, and just over and over showing how smart he was in crafting the sentence. I mean, as Tobias Wolf, the author, memorably puts it, he goes, Hemingway changed, he rearranged all the furniture in the room, and now we all have to sit in it. That's probably the best quote there about how he literally changed literature. He's the most important American author since Mark Twain, and arguably the most important author of the 20th century. Because of that brevity, the short, terse sentences, and literally changed everything. And so Ken Burns' style, he has a certain style, and it doesn't matter what the subject is, whether it's baseball or jazz or Mark Twain, there's a certain Ken Burns style. And similarly with Hemingway, he was attracted to doing, in some ways, similar subject matter, but looking at it a different way. So by meaning, I guess if you, well, the, the movie makes a great point about Bach. The music of Bach is like very rhythmic. It's about the, being a mastery of repetition. Um, you know, if you look at certain paintings, Hemingway was very much inspired by paintings, Paul Cezanne. He repaints the same view, but it's a new way to look at it. So, so many of Hemingway's stories are about what? War, violence, courage, survival, love, sacrifice, nobility. You know, those storylines return over and over, but he's doing so in lots of different ways. So just the focus on writing, I thought, was amazing. And in many ways, like his, his, his short stories are so underrated. I mean, the, I, I went back this weekend. I was on a flight when I was going to WWE. So I read The Short Happy Life of Francis McComber. I reread The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Those are great short stories. I mean, Harry and Kilimanjaro, he's got gangrene. He's dying. And we're meant to maybe understand that he died a long time ago because his, his life has died in so many ways. His dreams have died. When you look at A Farewell to Arms, the way they talk about that last passage about her dying in childbirth and he goes out in the rain, I mean, it's just haunting how powerful that ending is and how strong that writing is. Might be his, his best work ever. And as always, as he went to work uh, for the Kansas City Star, his style was their style guide. Use short sentences. Use short first paragraphs. Use vigorous English. You know, it's not about the adjectives. It's more about the verbs. That's, what's, that's how key it is. You know, even they got this quote here, if people bring so much courage to this world, this is from A Farewell to Arms. If people bring so much courage to this world, the world has to kill them to break them, so of course it kills them. The world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. But those that will not break, it kills. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you are none of these, you can be sure that it will kill you too, but there will be no special hurry. I mean, that is just... Incredible writing, Farewell to Arms. Sun Also Rises obviously kicked off his career. Great book. It's all about Brett. Again, amazing ending. Isn't it pretty to think so? One of the great ending lines, I would argue, in American history. And for those who think that Hemingway was just some masculine 
you know, a figure of toxic masculinity as we tear down Woody Allen and other people who have treated women terribly. Well, here's the important, I wouldn't say revisionist look at Hemingway, but different side of him. Up in Michigan is a short story, which is about date rape. And at the time, he was encouraged not to write it. But the voiceover, which is hauntingly done by Jeff Daniels, who's playing the role of Hemingway. So he's the one reading all of Hemingway's letters or reading from his books and does an incredible job. When I was reading the books this week, I kept hearing Jeff Daniels' voice. It's, it's masterful. I can't believe this guy's in Dumb and Dumber taking a dump, and all of a sudden now he's voicing Hemingway. That, that's the talent of Jeff Daniels, ladies and gentlemen. But when he's voicing up in Michigan, and it's about the date rape, I said, oh my God, like Hemingway was more understanding than you might think about the female perspective. And I'll get more to this, by the way, when we get to the, the sexual material involving Hemingway, which I did not see coming. So that's the writing, okay? He does for him The Bell Tolls, which I loved as a kid. I reread it, and I actually was a little more underwhelmed. And actually, one of the Spanish authors is hilarious. He talks about how some of the scenes of the lovemaking are eye-roll-inducing. So if you're keeping score, Sun Also Rises makes him a star. Farewell to Arms might be his best book, continues his stardom. Uh, for him, The Bell Tolls, uh, excellent. Some say his best. John McCain ends up being very interesting. Regardless of your politics, he's a huge Hemingway guy. He loves For Him, The Bell Tolls, talks about it. Uh, to Have and Have Not, you know the movie probably if you're a cinephile. The book wasn't great. Even Hemingway didn't like the book. Towards the end, he's fading. He's struggling. Um, of course, the last great hurrah, Pulitzer Prize, The Old Man in the Sea, which one of the writers denigrates but most love. I think it's brilliant especially the mentions of the great DiMaggio. And then a movable feast, and eventually things come to an end. Unfinished novel, The Garden of Eden, has a bunch of sexual stuff in there. Uh, and then away we go. So that's the literature. How about the man? Okay, grew up, father suffered from depression. That mental illness passed on to young Ernie. Uh, one of six kids, was close to his mom as a kid, later on insulted her, called her a bitch, didn't care for her. Didn't even go to her funeral. As far as a husband is concerned... I mean, it was just, it was notable what was going on in his life. The fact that he had four wives and seemed to have this pattern of falling in love, then falling in love with another woman, and then while still married, of course, has the affair, then tells the current wife, all right, I'm out. Did not treat women very well. Um, definitely verbally abusive. At one point, you know, he referred to one of his wives, I think, as a conceited bitch. I think the one who was um, challenging with him. Hemingway and Gellhorn, by the way, is a great document, a great movie, sorry, involving uh, Clive Owen. She deserves her own documentary. That's his third wife. Gellhorn's unbelievable. Great writer in her own right. Gives it as good as she gets it. Going back at Ernie. And one time Hemingway says to her, he's like, you know, you, you, they're going to be remembering me long after the worms are eating you. I mean, just, just horrible stuff. Um, but this all comes from his mom in some ways. You know, a sister of Ernest once said, my father was very devoted to my mother, but she was devoted to herself. And this is where things get strange. And I was not expecting this. The mom used to cut Hemingway's hair in the same style. Blunt bobs with bangs with the boys and the girls. So she's dressing them as boys, sometimes as girls. She encouraged them to both play with tea sets and air rifles, which continues this long pattern of Hemingway's life of being in love with androgyny. Weren't expecting that when you turned on this PBS documentary, were you? His fourth wife, Mary, as a matter of fact, the, sometimes Hemingway would pretend he was a girl and that Mary was a boy. And you think, all right, it's a little different, but hey man, now it's 2021, I mean, do whatever you want, I don't care. Oh, I don't know, fine, call me Catherine, and she's calling him whatever. I don't, that doesn't mean he's, uh, you know, cross-dressing, or we don't know what was actually happening in the bedroom, but clearly had an attraction to androgyny. And then the sadness hits. So as a husband, so as a writer, he's brilliant. As a husband, let's be generous and say subpar. I think some of the women had some issues here. Clearly, he had his issues uh, with all these affairs. And then as a father, early on, I was thrilled. One of the kids actually goes, you know, my dad was a great dad. And I'm like, yes, all right, I mean, a little redemption here for Hemingway. But then later on, you hear other stories, like, oh, clearly not a good father as well. I'm such a huge Hemingway fan. I took a cruise with my wife and kids years ago, and when we went to uh, Key West, of course, I wanted to see Hemingway's house. So they talk about it there, and I'll still remember the tour guy was amazing. He said Hemingway would get up at 7 a.m., he'd write 700 words or lunch, whatever came true. And that's 700 words, as you know, got to be great. He's very hard on himself. He goes, but as his son then says, which verified the tour guide story, he goes, then he would come play with us. Like, he'd hang out with his kids, run around, whatever, screw around. Then he'd go fishing. Then he'd go out to the bar, get drunk with the boys, maybe get in a fight or two, repeat process. Like, that was for years. That's the life of Ernest Hemingway. He wrote some of his best works. I'm like, oh, at least he was a good dad. But later on, it's really sad what happened to his third son. So first son goes to war, and Hemingway, of course, loves that because he was in war. He was wounded in the war. The second son, unfortunately, also suffered from mental illness. This is the son who, in the documentary, says, my dad's a great dad. But he had mental health issues. At one point, literally, Hemingway is, like, by his bedside trying to look after him to help him. And the third son, this is really sad. His third son is arrested for wearing women's clothing in a movie, 
uh, theater. In the, in the women's dress room he was wearing, and apparently he'd put on leotards a few times and panties and enjoyed himself. And, you know, the parents obviously are not approving here in the 1940s. He's keeping it quiet. And then for some reason he gets caught, you know, wearing women's clothing in the women's bedroom and he's thrown in prison. Leads to a huge fight with Hemingway and his ex-wife. Your fault, your fault. You treat him this way. You raise him this way. And the mother ends up dying. And you're like, oh my God. And the, the, the parental neglect from both parents and the way that the son was treated, who I believe, um, you know, is now Gloria. I want to make that clear. His third and youngest child, born as Gregory, but then lived the latter part of her life as a trans woman. And so you wonder, did Gloria recognize some of her impulses in her father, the fact that her father had this attraction to, you know, androgyny and different uh, sides of his sexuality, and that Gregory eventually became Gloria. It's just sad to hear. But Hemingway, as far as his life concerned, the war stuff is absolutely true. Wounded in the war, which A Farewell to Arms is based on, then went and covered a couple more wars, suffered numerous concussions and head injuries. I think it's fair to say he was suffering from CTE. I don't think that's a broad stereotype. Like if you watch this, you're like, man, this guy was getting banged up all over the place. World War II, Spanish War, shot at, almost captured, had suffered like uh, uh, two plane crashes on the safari to Africa. Like, oh my God, how many lives does this guy have? And so, as you all know, his life ended by suicide. Suffering from mental illness, depression, took him a week to write like four sentences. If I can't write, then I'm out of here. And he'd called his father a coward for also committing suicide. And I believe two of his siblings committed suicide. He took electric shock therapy, didn't work, ends up killing his life, blows his brains out because he couldn't write anymore. It just felt useless. And he was 61 years old and his entire life is over. And you have to think of the life of Ernest Hemingway, brilliant writer, subpar husband, Subpar father, what does it all mean in the end? It means you can admire the writer while still appreciating as a human being there were a lot of weaknesses. Joe? Yeah, and, and everything that you that you said just going into his writing and his life and how much he kind of pushed the envelope at that time, I think it was in up, up in Michigan, a part of that, where Gertrude Stein called one of the stories unpublishable or even, you know, a, a high school staple that, you know, a lot of my friends and I had to read in high school, the, um, Hills Like White Elephants, which is about abortion, but they don't say the word. It it was really, really interesting and cool to hear how he started out his work. But for you, Adnan, you're a big fan. Did that stem, your fandom for him stem from high school, you know, having to read it there? Or did you reach out afterwards to look up his stories after that? What was it for you? No, it's a great question, Joe. And again, it goes to his appeal, which is, and he said that at one point, you know, kids in high school can read my book. And similarly for me, in high school, it's like, all right, you get one of these 10 authors to read. Go, right? Read three books, do a biography, et cetera. So I just picked Hemingway. I'm like, all right, he seems like a manly man. I like his name. Very famous guy. There's a bar in Toronto called Hemingway's. He uh, used to work for the Toronto Star, which was very, very cool to have in the documentary. Wasn't cra- I don't think he was anti-Canadian. He just didn't really like the job. So he actually ended up, ended up being a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star. He actually lived in Paris. But that led to The Sun Also Rises. But I, I like that the Canadian tie there. But yeah, I read it in high school like many people. And I just said, I, I liked his style because... You know, Faulkner, who I have great respect for, and I wish I could figure it out, but I can't. Like, you read this stuff, and you go, gee, the sound on the fury, like, what is happening? These long run-on sentences and this florid language, and the fact that Hemingway is just so clean, like a razor, right? Just that concise brevity. I just said, I'm really attracted to it. And, um, you know, and just his themes. Like, as, as John McCain says about From the Bell Tolls, he's like, man, it's love, it's war, it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Who doesn't like this kind of stuff? But it was just really interesting to see all these different influences. You mentioned Gertrude Stein. I mean, there's this, I might want to read this, this 2017 biography about Hemingway. It said that Stein found him extraordinarily good looking. And Hemingway was 22 years old at the time, and she was 48. Um, it's really just cool. Again, just the genesis of a great writer. Um, Hemingway reads this passage from a letter to his father. This was right after The Sun Also Rises, which was 1926. You see, I'm trying in all my stories to get the feeling of the actual life across, not just to depict life or criticize it, but to actually make it alive, so that when you've read something by me, you actually experience the thing. You can't do this without putting in the bad and the ugly, as well as what is beautiful. Because if all it is beautiful, you can't believe in it. Things aren't that way. It is only by showing both sides, three dimensions, and if possible, four, that you can write the way I want to. I mean, this is a guy who later on was disemboweled by depression, alcoholism, sex shame, and vanity. Uh, it's amazing. But just his, his ideas of what he wants to do, I just think are fascinating. And it goes back to the whole idea of style. And I mean, when he says, if, it, if it's all beautiful, you can't believe things aren't that way. You know, Brian Tallarico, I read that quote off the top. 
Like this is, Hemingway himself often took simple sentence and storytelling structures and imbued them with an honesty and insight that his colleagues and later imitators couldn't muster. He would have liked this story too. Uh, and as an aside, this was really funny. <laughs> this was an article I came across, democratherald.com. They're not big Ken Burns fans, but this is funny. In virtually every Ken Burns film, there is a moment in which he takes way too long to introduce something that is totally obvious. He stretches the moment as in this paraphrase from his series on country music. Claire Atkins will love this. We both love Johnny Cash. A new face with a deep baritone to go with it arrived in the country and western scene at about this time. Born in Kingsland, Arkansas, and raised in a farm in Dias, Arkansas, he grew up listening to gospel music on the radio, served in the Air Force for a spell, and also spent time selling vacuum cleaners door to door. He wanted to get into radio. His name was Johnny Cash. <laughs> he does that like with Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron, Jackie Robinson. Like, okay, I think I know where you're going with this, but I just, but I love it. Like, they're making fun of him. I love the Ken Burns style. I just think it's different. Um, Again, his passion. There was like 47 different versions of A Farewell to Arms. There's one letter in which he lambastes a writer and just casually uses the N-word. Like, where, where did this come from? Like, what? Like, what is this guy, a racist? I mean, it's hard to excuse away that in a letter he's using the N-word. Um, you know, the fact he calls his father a coward for dying by suicide and later emulates him. Um but again, it just keeps going back to that style. Daniel says about Hemingway, and he's talking as Hemingway, he goes, I just nail words together like a bloody carpenter. The quote, again, to be specific, when he mocks Gellhorn was, they'll be reading my stuff long after the worms have finished with you. Just showing what a cruel guy this is. But it is a tragic ending because he wanted more writing to be done. But just, I'm telling you, man, the CTE and the war wounds and the human fallibility and, and the alcoholism. God, I haven't even mentioned the booze yet. Joe, this is incredible. We've done like 30 minutes in Hemingway. I haven't talked about the booze. The amount of drinking this guy did is like, oh, my God, just a day and night. Like By the end, it's like you are just a walking uh, human personages of booze um, and all that drinking. I mean, it just, it just ended up collapsing and, and really ruining him. The, the alcoholism, along with all the wounds, I mean, it really shows him to be an intensely American writer, but as I said, obviously a very, very, very mortal one. So what did you think? You saw the first series. What did you think as far as the storytelling and, you know, his personal life, that kind of stuff? Oh, I thought it was fascinating. I, I read um, A Movable Feast a few years ago about his time in Paris and when he was a young man working it out and the relationship that they delved through in that episode. And it was just fascinating to hear you know, his work ethic, how accountable he, he held himself with his writing, how he was struggling with trying to write a novel when F. Scott Fitzgerald was coming out with it, and he could only write a paragraph at that point. I, I just thought it was fascinating, but there was one, I think, review right after The Sun Also Rises came out that they mentioned where he got uh, one critic said that he wrote it as though he had never read any other author before. And I thought that was a real testament to just how much he changed the game of writing and, and American writing particularly. I absolutely loved it, Adnan. I'm glad we share a brain on it, Joe. I think it's extraordinary. As you can figure out, four big maple leaves. Mary Welsh, by the way, one of his wives, said that Ernest wanted his wives to be completely obedient and sexually loose. I mean, it's an interesting way to... Uh... <laughs> Go looking for a wife. <laughs> I wondered too, Joe, as I was watching, I wonder what his nickname was. He's like, no one's calling this guy Ernest. So I thought they called him Ernie, but a lot of them referred to him as Hem. Well, a level of surprise by that. If I'd said to you, what do you think Ernest Hemingway, call, his friends called him, wouldn't you have thought it was Ernie? I was a little surprised they went with Hem. Yeah, I feel like that's the natural fit right there, is there uh, Ernie Hemingway, you know, but him, I guess, you know, I guess <laughs> I, I think I would prefer that over Ernie because I've met Ernie, so I haven't met too many hems, you know? Yeah, I think hem makes sense. The shortening of name, I just thought, hey, if I have an opportunity to call a guy an Ernie, I'm calling him Ernie, but uh, Ernest was not right. getting called Ernie by the boys and they're boozing and about to fight and checking out the girls and all the rest of it. Um <laughs> I really want you all to check it out. Once again, it's on PBS. I think it's a, a great documentary, as I've cleanly made clear. Mark Feeney of Boston Globe. Burns and Novick face the opposite challenge and excess of material. The evidence of the eventfulness of that life, its exteriority, is extensive to say the least. Meeting that challenge, they demonstrate a fine eye for detail. After the break, entertainment news, including the winners of the BAFTA Awards, and we speak with Brad Furman, director of the new film City of Lies, which is streaming on Netflix. Stay tuned.
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, the BAFTAs are in, the British Academy Awards for the Uninitiated, and the Francis McDormand-led road movie does great. Four prizes, including Best Film, also won for Lead Actress, Cinematography, and Director. So I don't know what the hell's going to happen with Best Actress. I haven't had a chance yet. I'm going to all dive in and check out Gold Derby and all the rest of it. But from where I'm sitting, Viola Davis won the SAG. Andrew Day won a big award. Uh, and now McDormand wins the BAFTA. It feels like a three-horse race here. I don't know what the hell is going to happen. Uh, director wins again. Chloe Job. That's going to be the biggest lock. I mean, Andy Katz texted. Like, give me, give me a lock. I'm like, I'm going to give you a lock. Nomadland's going to win Best Picture, and Chloe Jaw's winning director. After that, it gets a little interesting. And here's where it gets interesting. You would have thought, oh, Best Actor. The other lock I was about to say is Chadwick Boseman. No, in an absolute stunner, Anthony Hopkins wins Best Actor. Stunning only that he didn't win. Not that he didn't deserve it, but just the fact that he beat Boseman. Um, wasn't even there to collect the award. He later turned up to a virtual winner's press conference where he confirmed he will not be attending the Oscars. He said, I'm going to be in Wales for the Oscars. When are they again? They got a little bit of joke about it. So there's no chance Anthony Hopkins going to win now. And uh, as our friend Scott Feinberg tweeted, he thought if anyone was going to win other than Chadwick, it'd be Riz Ahmed, fellow British actor. And as we all know, you know, I love how much I love that film. So Riz doesn't win, Hopkins does. It's a bit of a surprise. I still don't think that'll impact the... Uh, Actual Academy Awards. Outstanding British film, which is an interesting category. Think about that. Imagine, uh, you know, outstanding uh, French film. Like, you know, whatever the Oscars are. Outstanding American film in, in the, at the Oscars. How odd would that be? But they actually have a category. Outstanding British film. Promising a Woman wins there. Director, I mentioned Jaw. Original screenplay. This really feels like Promising a Woman, right? They got to win something. This feels like this is going to be their prize for the filmmaker. Adapted screenplay. The winner here is Christopher Hampton, Florian Zeller for The Father. That's interesting. I still think Nomadland has a chance there. Lead actress, I mentioned McDormand beating others, um, including Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman. Hopkins for Best Actor, Supporting Actor. It feels like this is the lock of all locks. You want more locks? I got locks for you. Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Nobody is beating that guy. Although I love seeing Paul Racy get nominated for Sound of Metal and my man Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami. Supporting actress, if there was one award the BAFTAs I was happy about, one award that I checked on my phone and said, oh my God, I'm so pumped, Yu Jung Yoon, you guessed it for Minari. I mean, as Feinberg tweeted, this officially makes her the frontrunner to win an Academy Award. This is going to be my favorite moment of the Oscars if she wins. Thank God this means Glenn Close is not going to win. Would be really cool to see Maria Bakalova win, but I'm telling you, man, Yu Jung Yoon for Minari. She's carrying the torch for that film. It's a beautiful, exquisite film, and her performance to me is an absolute scene stealer. So I look forward to that. Documentary, I think this will hold for the Oscars. My Octopus Teacher, recently reviewed here on Cinephile. I think it is the front runner, not only after winning the BAFTAs, but I think it's going to win the actual Oscar. Uh, the original score favorite, this one also won John Batiste, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross for Soul. Amazing score. Um, they also won for Best Animated Film. That feels likely to happen for me. Cinematography, this also feels likely for the Oscars. Joshua James Richards for Nomadland. I love the editing went to Sound of Metal. Great win for Mikel E.G. Nielsen. Production design went to Mank. So Mank gets a little bit of love here. Um, and then you go from there, costume design, sound, all the rest of it. Another big win for me, sound. All right, the fact that it's the crew from Sound of Metal winning, a great sign for the Academy Awards. Visual effects did go to Tenant. They love Christopher Nolan. And away we go. Your thoughts, though, Joe, on the BAFTAs overall? You know, we talked a few weeks ago after the nominations came out um, that if Riz Ahmed was going to win an award, it would have been this one. He did not win. I was surprised about Anthony Hopkins, and I think this does solidify Eugene Yoon uh, for Minari as supporting actress because Maria Bakalova was winning a few during the circuit, but I think it's more of a lock now. But more, as you mentioned, I'm just so happy to see my octopus teacher and how much I was surprisingly love that movie, how well it's doing. Uh, I really hope that that one's best documentary, Adnan. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely something special, and uh, like you said, it's very very unique. Uh, away we go. Jason Isbell, Sturgill Simpson. They've joined the growing cast of Martin Scorsese's upcoming No uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. No release date has been announced for the Apple original film. This is the adaptation of David Grant's nonfiction book about a string of murders and Oklahoma's Osage. 
nation. Um, so for the cast, in case you're unfamiliar, Leo's playing Ernest Burkhart, Robert De Niro, William Hale, Jesse Plemons is Tom White, and you've got other notable Native American indigenous heritage people who have been cast to play Osage people. So cannot wait for Marty's latest. Speaking of big directors, Spielberg and Marty, good friends. Paul Dano is going to join Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen in Spielberg's semi-autographical film about his family. And it's Dano playing a version of Spielberg's father, Arnold. Project loosely based on Spielberg's childhood in Arizona, the late 50s and 60s. Michelle Williams playing a version of his mom. Rogan's a version of his uncle. Now you got Paul Dano playing the dad. And Spielberg co-wrote the screenplay with regular collaborator Tony Kushner. Dano, by the way, next appearing as the Riddler. And Matt Reeves is the Batman, which is due to open on March 4th, 2022. And of course, really sad news here involving DMX. I mean, at 50 years old, heart attack triggered by a drug overdose I mean, X going to give it to you. Rough Rider Anthem, wear the hood at, party up. Uh, it's just sad news there involving DMX, Joe. Obviously a major news story, which uh, everyone was talking about last week. Yeah, definitely. And I, I grew up, when he was first coming out, I was in junior high. And so he is ingrained as a part of my youth. It was really sad. A lot of love on social media. And he was really in his faith. He would always put that first and foremost. So, yeah, sad, sad to see him go. But, um, you know, at least we have his catalog of music to look back on. Yeah, no doubt about it, because it's definitely uh, tragic circumstances in which DMX leaves us now. That is your entertainment news involving the BAFTA Awards, Scorsese's film, Spielberg's film, and involving the noted rapper DMX. After the break, Brad Furman, director of the new film City of Lies, which is streaming on Netflix, plus the Mount Rushmore serious actors who cashed in. goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, I want everyone to watch this film. It's called City of Lies, and it's, our director is Brad Furman, who's joining us today. He's on Twitter, at Brad Furman. Here's a synopsis of the film. LAPD detective Russell Poole spent years trying to solve his biggest case, the murders of the notorious B.I.G. and Tupac Shakur. But after two decades, the investigation remains open. Jack Jackson, a reporter desperate to save his reputation and career, is determined to find out why, and oh, ends up being a very intriguing and riveting drama and thriller. Brad, congrats on the film. I greatly enjoyed Thanks for giving us a few minutes here on Cinephile. Oh, man, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for checking out the movie. It's a, it was a real labor of love. I always believed the messaging was incredibly important and still do, obviously. And that's where we're starting with, because an hour and 45 minutes, and when it was done, I, and that's why I wanted to start with the synopsis, because when I saw the movie was being sent to me, and thanks to our friend Ben Lines of the Hat Tip, I said, okay, Johnny Depp film, Forrest Whitaker film. I said, no, no. And they're great, and we're going to get to them in a second. But I want people to say, hey, I'm interested in what happened to Biggie and Tupac. Well, this is the movie for you. So let's begin there. There's so much rich material. There's fertile material over the years, documentaries, other films exposing what happened to these guys, the conspiracies, et cetera. What was it about this material, Brad, as you said, a labor of love, that you wanted to investigate specifically what Russell Poole and Jack Jack and we're after. Well, first off, thank you to Ben Lyons as well for connecting us. Uh, I've, I've gotten a chance to become friends with Ben. He's a great guy. So Ben, thank you. Uh, secondly, in answer to that question, I, I grew up being a huge fan of hip hop, rap, R&B. Um, Biggie and Pac were deeply, deeply influential in my life. So to have the opportunity to make a film that I could in some way honor these men and the influence that they had on me was something that I was very intrigued by. But moreover, I was deeply sensitive to the fact as a white Jewish male that I had zero interest in attempting to exploit the murder of Christopher Wallace and or, you know, his life and legacy. So I had to figure out, as I had read the Labyrinth book many years earlier and knew the expose into the world of corruption and the failure of the institution, institutions, I should say, of the Los Angeles Police Department, and the city of Los Angeles, you know, how do I tell this story hand in hand? How do I humanize this story? 
um, of Christopher, hand in hand being, I, I wanted to tell it in conjunction with the Wallace estate, the Wallace family, and ultimately Miss Wallace. Equally, that applied to the Poole family, as well as that was extended to the Shakur estate and family. So as a result of all of that, it was a lot of heavy lifting to put those pieces together, but I blindly reached out to Miss Wallace over six to nine months, built a beautiful friendship with her, and thereby that led me to endeavoring with her and Wayne Barrow, Biggie's former manager, to make the movie Hand in Hand and to you know, get into the expose of the corruption, the cover-up, uh, the injustices against Christopher as a young black male and as a human being. And obviously, I think those things are resonating in a very large way today because if something like this could happen to Christopher and it could go unsolved for 24 years, um, you know, it could, it could truly happen to anyone. And, you know, I think there's a responsibility from my side of the fence as someone who is not black or brown to, you know, speak out against these injustices and fight for equality for all of us. Well, that's well said, and I appreciate your passion in looking for equality for all races. And we all know what's happening right now in this country with the police shootings and um, the plight of African-American males specifically and why people of color are so upset and frustrated and why there are social unrest protests. With regards to the film and City of Lies, as you mentioned, you're reaching out to real people here, but you're not making a documentary. So how challenging was it? You're making a work of fiction, but it's based on real events. How do you manage uh, that dissection of both of those? Well, it was very purposeful. Um, outside of being a filmmaker who makes narrative fictional movies, I've also made a documentary that I'm incredibly proud of years ago when I first started. So the opportunity to do a documentary is something that's always interested in me. Uh, actually, something I went into the marketplace and just to show you the level of fear and ignorance that exists. I wasn't actually even able to sell it. That was after completion of the movie. And I have tapped into things way beyond the scope of what's in the movie for the story. And my dear friend who brought me the book and is an executive producer on the movie, Don Sikorsky, who's a wonderful investigative journalist, sort of set the foundation for all of this and took it further with the Dossier podcast. In a direct answer to your question, my reality is I had no interest, as I said, in making a movie that had to deal with the cover-up and corruption regarding the murder of Christopher Wallace that wasn't, you know, in theory, fact-based. So from that perspective, what I did was a full-blown reinvestigation of the case. I did that in the journey of connecting with, first and foremost, Randall Sullivan, who wrote The Wonderful Labyrinth book and is an incredible investigative journalist um, for years now. Uh, thereby connected with Perry Sanders, who is the lead, uh, was the lead attorney on the Wallace civil case against the city and the LAPD. And their lead investigator was Sergio Robledo, who was sadly passed. Um, and he was my technical advisor on the film. He was Russ Poole's supervisor during a large portion of Russ's tenure at the LAPD. And Sergio was my right, left hand, eyes, ears, and everything on this movie. He opened the door to me into the redacted files, into depositions, into things that, um, to be frank, uh, no one had really been exposed to uh, with that level of detail. And as a result, he did it um, because of his love for Russ Poole, his belief in Russ's work, the integrity in Russ's character. And um, he always felt an injustice was caused against the Wallace family, Miss Wallace and Russ. So he wanted to help in any way he can. Um, I wouldn't even have told you how I got that information if it hadn't been for him passing. Um, but since he's passed, I feel more comfortable to speak openly about it. A hundred percent. We're talking right now, Brad Furman, the film is called City of Lies. I encourage all of you to check it out. As I mentioned, the plot synopsis, I remember the principals involved, Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker. Now, Johnny Depp, I don't want to get into the off-the-field stuff because clearly nobody cares about that stuff here in the podcast. You focus on the movies. And it's a good reminder here, Brad, Whatever's happened outside the lines, on screen, he's a magnetic screen presence, he's a terrific actor, and I thought he was really terrific in this movie. What was it like getting Johnny involved, and uh, how did you find him on set? Thank you. I think Johnny is one of the most affable, amazing, gentle, kind human beings. You couldn't ask for a better partner, and you couldn't ask for a better human being to work with. He is um, a true artist. He thinks outside the box. He challenges you. Uh, he challenges the creative. He was the singular person that I wanted to make this movie. As we know or don't know, um, when movies are financed, it's the actor of a certain value that triggers the financing and the international sales model. They typically give you 10 actors and they say, go pick one. 
Um, and then you, you go down the list and usually filmmakers never get their first choice. <clears throat> and um, my first and only choice for this movie was Johnny Depp. That's a line you'll hear all the time when directors make movies on interviews. It's actually the truth. Um, I think a lot of fortuitous things lined up that I got Johnny's interest. I got a meeting with him that I thought would be typically, you know, director after meeting hour, hour and a half. It was nine and a half hours in his West Hollywood office. <clears throat> and we connected personally, professionally. We connected on the strength and character of Russ Poole, his belief in justice, his love of Biggie, his first love of music. Um, I cannot say enough nice things about Johnny. And, you know, to be frank, his own version of truth and integrity um, it, it's very much personified in, in how we see Russ Poole on this character and his fight for justice. Yeah, I, I love one of the things I always love about Johnny Depp is he always seems a little left of center, and I say that in a good way. He's never taking a so-called stock character and making him routine. He always has this slight bent of originality to it, whether it's the mustache, it's the hair, the look, the delivery. I just thought he was uh, very magnetic in this performance and clearly a guy who's looking to do the right thing. Speaking of doing the right thing, so is Forrest Whitaker, who's this dogged, intrepid reporter. And one of the, the aspects I like most about him is, generally I find his performances a real earnestness about him. Sometimes it's not there, obviously, when he won an Oscar for Idi Amin and Last King of Scotland. But that, that earnest search for the truth, I thought this character really embodied that. What was it like getting Forrest involved? Forrest is a heavyweight that I had been attracted to working with dating back to my first feature, The Take, 2005. Subsequently, as you just mentioned, he won the Academy Award for Last King of Scotland, which he's incredible in. Um, Johnny and Forrest had a small exchange with each other in Platoon years and years ago. So um, I, I actually, my sights were set in a bit of a different direction, and Forrest became available and of interest, and we sat down together. Johnny personally loved him. They had always wanted, as I stated, to rework together, and uh, you know, we were able to get Forrest on board. And he has this gravitas as an actor that's incredibly unique. I, I say he is one of the greatest emotional actors with saying nothing. Don't have to give him anything to actually say. It's just there's a depth in his movement, his eyes, and it's very special, and it really resonates, and I think uh, it works for the film. Some really memorable one-liners in the movie, particularly when one character's talking about Suge Knight, what he was into, and uh, <laughs> in no particular order, it's power and pussy, which reminded me of Scarface, of course, when uh, Pacino's discussing how you get ahead in America. Tell me about the script. You don't tell me about that line specifically, but uh, the script and coming up with these details towards looking at not necessarily thug life, but death row records and what that lifestyle is all about. Well, Christian Contreras wrote a really brilliant script. Uh, I believe this is his first script. I'm pretty sure it's his first produced script. Christian was actually an, as an actor as well, and he played a small role in my film, The Infiltrator, with Brian Cranston. Uh, he plays a banker. He's a great actor. Um, this movie, I had been tracking this movie for 12 years, and I was unable to get a hold of it for many, many reasons. But through Don Sikorsky's doggedness, um, some stuff that happened with my former agent at the time, uh, Stuart Manischel and uh, the producer Miriam Siegel, fortuitously and oddly, it sort of came in, came into my space, and I was ultimately able to to get a hold of it, um, and that's sort of how that ended up getting launched off. Well, it's it's amazing the way the scriptings are coming together. Like I said, it really is important to have all those different elements working in concert. I'm glad you brought the Infiltrator. Which I love that movie. I mean, I, I, I thought it was really well-received, Brad, but I wish... Thank you. No, no, seriously, I, I mean, because I'm a huge Cranston fan, I'm, and the, for many people, that was the draw. And I said, okay, it's a drug movie, but this time he's on the different side of the law. And I love Johnny Depp, which you've heard, because I love Donnie Brasco. So similar themes here in that undercover cop and infiltrating and the scene where he gets found out and his reaction to it. Um, I love that movie. Anything you can tell me about working with Cranston, because I really thought that was a great summer film. Sure, and I'll, and I'll circle back because I, I think I, I owe the writer, Christian Gutierrez, a little more love, too, because um, he did write some brilliant scenes and one-liners and inspiration. Uh, Cranston was and is just an absolute gem. He's a leader. I, I always, I, at this point, it's become a joke. I always praise him so much on his moral and ethical integrity that I say it so much has become a long-running joke with us. I, I, he's really a special, special human being. He's a deeply talented actor. I, got, I was blessed and lucky enough to work with him on The Lincoln Lawyer, and as a result of that, um, we remained very close touch. We became friends, and uh, the, the infiltrator was like the perfect vehicle for him to do something different than Breaking Bad, star in a movie, have his own starring movie, and 
for me to bring my friends and family like John Leguizamo and Benjamin Bratt and everybody around him. And circling back, which I, I think I have a responsibility to do because you sort of set it up there and I didn't, I didn't see it through all the way. I went back to telling you the history of how it ended up in my hands that way because the script was actually written originally without my involvement, even though I had been tracking the movie for 12 years. Subsequently, um, when I was, I guess it was the tail end of my completion of The Infiltrator, uh, Miriam had gone out with my agent and they had gotten the rights. They knew, obviously, it was a project that I was dying to do. So it was a gift to me, actually, for my work on The Infiltrator. Um, but as Hollywood goes and politics go and a lot of things happen, I ended up not signing on to officially about 18 months later. And, um, you know, there were just certain prerequisites that I was requiring for me to step onto the movie that they just weren't able to meet. And then eventually, as life has it and things change, um, what ended up happening was they were able to make adjustments and understand that there were certain things I was unwilling to bend on and attaching myself to direct the film. Obviously, one of them being I had to have the support of, you know, you know, the Wallace estate and everybody I named previously. But Christian, I mentioned this because Christian really went out and wrote this script from his heart. And I thought it was a great read. It was a blacklist script. But when I sat with him, I said, it's a brilliant script, but I don't think it translates to a movie. So we worked tirelessly, him and I, to translate it to a movie. And a lot of decisions, certain things that I wasn't sure of early on were sort of baked in. And then I had to make the decisions on like, you know, do I want to unravel this thing? But at the end of the day, we really made it work. And I've always led with the fact that I felt that um, Christian did a brilliant job and was super inspired. We were a great team. Jess first, my producing partner, along with Don Sikorsky, really helped develop it. And it ultimately became the movie you now see today. And uh, I just lean into the messaging. I think this movie is so much bigger than me, especially being on a podcast like this. Typically, we're talking and we can continue to do so about whatever you want, my movies, this, that, and the other. But for me, there is a social justice messaging, uh, <laughs> messaging about police brutality, all of these things that you mentioned that are current in the world today, especially during this current trial, that are immensely important. And I'm just hoping people who see the movie talk about the movie. We look at each other from a accountability standpoint um, and hold each other as individuals accountable. And that applies to the larger institutions and those who work within them. And we're actually working to do some actual things so people who've watched the movie who feel emotionally impacted by it can actually be a part of change if that's something they choose to do in honoring Miss Wallace and getting her justice and beyond that to impact change in how we treat others in the world today. I did think the uh, final credits are very important and uh, I won't give it away. I want everyone to see it. But your point about the number of African-Americans who are, uh, uh, their murders are unsolved by police and what that means. So to your point, I know that you are uh, clearly backing up what you're saying, not only in the film, but also in life. Once again, City of Lies, released on March 19th. It's followed by a PVOD release right now. I encourage all of you to see the movie. Our final closing thoughts, since I see you're a huge Philly sports fan, the question I'm often asked, <laughs> as a Canadian from Toronto, when people say to me, what's your team? They immediately typecast me as some diehard Leafs fan. I tell them the Leafs are terrible, and I mock them. And they say, well, who's your team? And I always tell them the Flyers. I go, Flyers? How is a Canadian a Flyers fan? So I tell them every single time, every day of my life, my brother is an older brother, 85 and 87. As you know, the Oilers face the Flyers. So naturally being brothers, yeah. I cheered against my brother. Why was my brother an Oilers fan? He's a front runner because Gretzky was dominating. So of course, I'm going to cheer for the best team. So I'll <laughs> cheer for the other team. So Ron Hextall very quickly became my favorite player. And to this day, I always say I would have goosebumps if I were going to meet Ron Hextall, slashing down Kent Nielsen, almost pulled off the victory, still won the Smith in 87. Uh, and then they say, well, how the Eagles thing happened. I said, well, I was already a Flyers fan. I said, well, what the hell? I might as well pick another Philly team. And I love Cunningham as a kid. So whenever anyone asks you, what's the strangest fandom story you've heard? I go, well, there's this guy from Canada. He loves the Flyers and loves the Eagles. Tell me about your fandom. Specifically, I, so specifically, I want to talk Flyers because Legion of Doom, like we don't need to discuss this year. March is one of the worst months ever in Flyers history. But for you specifically, <laughs> Flyers fan. They really fell apart. Oh, horrible. Um, Obviously, I'm very passionate, and, and you have a wonderful energy, so I've been a bit loquacious in this interview. I, I'm, I'm a crazy, crazy Philadelphia sports fan across the board. Um, in, in my early years, the Flyers won some Stanley Cups. That'll age me a little bit. Um, I, I, I grew up, everybody in that era and time were rabid about the Flyers. Um, I, I know you didn't mention the Sixers, but even in those early years, there was things with the Sixers. And, um, you know, I grew up on Jaworski, Cunningham, and my dad is an Eagles fanatic. Um, he went with my grandfather 
it was in 1960, right? Uh, you know, when they won the, uh, well, that version of the NFC championship, because I guess there was no Super Bowl at that time. Right. Um, but so this year we went, well, not this year, a few years back, we went to the NFC championship with Foles and my pops and I flew in and uh, it, 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 we shared it with my other family members and my mom. And it was just a really, um, it was really nice. Feeling. I mentioned my pops first because he got to share it with his father years prior. So I got to share it with him. And um, that year in particular for, I think, every Philadelphia, it's like the biggest deal ever. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think there's a culture which is sort of cool. Um, by the way, just on the Canada front, Shamir Anderson, who plays uh, David Mack, is from Toronto. Nice. And he refs Canada really hard. He's, he's a brilliant actor. Uh, I think he's going to be one of the brightest shining stars of the future up ahead. I was very proud to cast him. But in tying this all together, there's a culture of uh, a bit of a blue collar, you know, work, work your butt off Philadelphia, you know, uh, take no BS type of thing. And, um, that, that comes with the DNA of being from Philadelphia. And if you get knocked down, you get back up and you don't complain about it. And I definitely, that's, you know, by the way, that's inspired by movies like Rocky Balboa. Rocky is like a, a real athletic figure in Philadelphia. He's not a fake movie character. He's real. Um, so when you take all these things together, I think uh, our sports teams and the fans have exemplified that through the years. And, uh, you know, we've just been rabid and I, I'm very much that person. I, I, I love that in L.A. you walk into like a sports bar and it's empty, right? But then you go, it's, it's playoff time and it's like everybody's a fan. I've never seen, you know, in Philadelphia, it's not like that. It's like you live, eat, sleep, breathe these things. So I think you're part of an amazing history and culture. And we'll happily take you being from Canada. We got no problem. And nothing <laughs> needed my sign off, but, but, but you got it. <laughs> no problem. I appreciate that because I often wonder, I'm like, how will Philly people react to this interloper? And I'm like, I think generally, as long as we uh, we have the same stripes on, so to speak, that it's a win for all involved. And Chris Berman, who I worked with at ESPN, once was asked in an interview, who has the best fans in the country? And he said, I know I'm going to get in trouble with this, but I'll just say it's definitely <laughs> the East Coast. And I will say it's between Philadelphia, New York, Boston. So Take that as it were, Philly oh, sports wow. fans. Yeah, he, and he knew, he said, I'm going to get fired for this. But he goes, the passion in those three cities is pretty much unmatched, uh, depending on what, obviously, the sport is. Uh, more importantly. He, he, and he's right. Yeah, he's right. Those cities, it's it's a different level of fandom. Uh, I'm a big fan of City of Lies. I encourage all of you to check it out. Brad Furman is the director. You can follow him on Twitter. Brad, tell everyone where they can see this excellent film. The movie is out in your local theaters currently. Due to COVID and the global pandemic, I get some are going, some are not. But if you want to just sit in your home and, and watch it, you can grab it on VOD. It's on iTunes. It's on Apple. It's on Vudu. Uh, if you're not finding it on those three platforms, it is there. But if you have another alternative, you can Google it and find another VOD platform. Buy it. Rent it. Check it out. And please understand that um, this movie is much bigger than a movie. It is a true life story of a man who lost his life at the hands of the Los Angeles Police Department. And his mother is still searching for justice. And what happened to him applies to everything that's happening and unfolding to us today, 24 years later. Great, great stuff, Brad Furman. Thank you so much, Brad. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Thank you. A real honor and pleasure to have me. Thank you. Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for the Mount Rushmore serious actors who cashed in. I mean, this is incredible. So Joe is really looking at the money here. I, I kind of wanted to go in a different direction, which was like a great actor in a film that doesn't fit for him. Like, remember when Giamatti was in San Andreas? I'm like, why the hell is Paul Giamatti in this movie? Similarly, you know, why is uh, Kyle Chandler in this movie? But I like the direction Joe went in, which is just that like, just guys get paid a ton of money. So we'll do this. Sandra Bullock as Dr. Ryan Stone in Gravity was paid $70 million. Sandra Bullock got $70 million for that movie. This is insane. How does this happen? Um, I don't want to go just with the most money, because the most money, I mean, listen, Will Smith, Men in Black 3 got $100 million. But the ones that are just unique and interesting, that's how I'll phrase it. Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc in Knives Out, Paid $100 million. That's $50 million per movie. 
That is insane. How was Knives Out? I mean, Knives Out's a good movie. I enjoyed it. Entertaining. He's getting $100 million here for the sequels. $50 million per movie. There's another one. Cameron Diaz, Elizabeth Halsey, and Bad Teacher paid $42 million. A mere $1 million to get Bad Teacher produced, but received a portion of box office earnings, which secured her over $40 million for the movie. It's known as one of the most legendary deals in Hollywood history. So those are my two right there. Daniel Craig, $100 million for the sequels of Knives Out. Cameron Diaz, $42 million. You want a big one? Bruce Willis as Dr. Malcolm Crow in The Sixth Sense. Arguably, not arguably, it is one of his best movies. $115 million. Like, wow, I see dead people. Man, him and Haley Joel. I wonder what Haley Joel Osment got for that movie. Willis got $115 million. Remarkable. The one that I remember as a kid, which is why I'm going to mention it, even though it's not the most money, but I remember being 11 going, oh, yeah, man, how about this Jack Nicholson guy? I wonder who he is. He got $50 million to play the Joker in Batman. At the time, you go, wow, this is a great actor. What's he doing? You know, he's kind of mailing it in popcorn movie. What the hell? He was awesome. Tim Burton had a ton of fun, and Jack clearly got paid laughing all the way to the bank with $50 million. So those are going to be the Mount Rushmore for me. Daniel Craig, Cameron Diaz, Bruce Willis, and Johnny Depp. Joe? That's pretty good. That Yeah, the Daniel Craig one is really incredible, but I'm going to one-up you, and I'm going to go with um, Adam Sandler. He, pay, he, he cashed in to make four movies for Netflix, $250 million he made off of them, $62.5 million per movie. Uh, I will also put on Jim Carrey as Carl Allen in Yes Man. He got paid $30 million for that role. Um, and then I'll go with Johnny Depp as the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. He was paid $68 million. And then my final one will be Will Smith as Agent J in Men in Black 3. I'm sure he did this for the money. He got paid $100 million flat for his role in that film, Adnan. So my four are Adam Sandler... Jim Carrey, Johnny Depp, and Will Smith. Yeah, the Johnny Depp one is pretty impressive, right? When we the previous we talked, we talked about Johnny Depp, how much money he's made. Like, it's just insane, right? For these movies, how smart he's been when it comes to pirates and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, 100%. He, he, could, he could stop right now. I mean, I, I can see why he's focused on just creating a band and touring across the country with other <laughs> people at this point. Yeah, you know what? I'm in enough here playing the Mad Hatter. I'm good to go. Yeah, now he wants to play Keith Richards all the time as, <laughs> as just a general life person. Yeah. All right. Great stuff here from Joe, as always. Like I said, we're going to keep doing Cinephile here. At some point, we are moving from Cadence 13 to Metal Arc, but my thanks to the entire team. Sean Cherry, I meant to shout out as well, our technical director. Sean's awesome. He always hops on for the interviews, as he did today uh, with the interview with Brad Furman, but uh, we'll keep cranking out these episodes here, all right? Cinephile leading up to the Academy Awards. Uh, great stuff, once again, from Brad Furman. Check out City of Lies. And seriously, if you like Hemingway as much as I do, go check it out. And more importantly, When's the last time a documentary or any film inspired you to go read? I mean, that that's the great the greatness of this work. I went and read this weekend. I mean, I, I normally like to read. I mean, I get that, but I'm on the flight reading away. I'm like, yeah, just cranking out some Ernie Hemingway from 1940. And I'm glad, Joe, you mentioned Immovable Feast. My friend Anish, who has not watched the film, he immediately texted and goes, oh, dude, I love Immovable Feast. I say, no, I've never read it. I meant to, and he goes, oh, no, it's amazing. I said, no, no, I know. I watched it. No, and I watched the documentary. I know why it's so good. But there, as you can verify, it's like he's just taking shots at F. Scott Fitzgerald and his friends. I mean, part of the theme of the movie is that, like, he would turn on his friends, which, again, is not a very good character, uh, a character flaw. But uh, a movable feast you were a fan of. You're giving it thumbs up. Oh, I give it a thumbs up. I think it really delves into, you know, it's nice to hear him talk about his early 20s and what inspired through a reflective lens, you know, he, I think he wrote it when he was maybe 60 years old. And so to hear his like revision around that time and then to have it backed up by this documentary, it's definitely worth the read. Cannot recommend it enough. All right. I'm, I'm going to go to the library. How about that? I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to go get a movable feast. And uh, for the record, Across the River Into the Trees, which was lambasted by critics, I actually kind of like it. Maybe it's just about this colonel in love with an Italian woman and my love of Italian women or something, but I don't know. I actually think Across the River Into the Trees, pretty good. All these critics say it sucks. That's what tells you. Don't listen to the critics. Believe in your heart and support Cinephile. Thanks for listening. I'll see you at the movies. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. 
The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com